We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. The first cycle is through, maybe you've noticed it, as you flip through the book, you'll have this little symbol right here, but there are three cycles to this book. And we've completed the first round. Congratulations. Woo! Golf clap. Yeah. <laughs> so we are doing 7th Street, Robert, and Avi today, all wrapped up in one video today. Time stamped down below of things. Uh, where do we want to start? Do we want to start about the setting? I, I think that's worth pointing out that, you know, in the first whole cycle, it was mostly, if not all, Georgia, I think. And and if you're just now starting, Crypto hasn't read this book all the way through, and I have. But now we're starting into Washington, D.C., where I think most of them, and there's one other major metropolitan representation, but uh, most of these stories are going to be D.C. from here on out. You definitely could feel a tonal shift of, I feel like, the hustle and bustle. It feels faster to me. Why Washington, D.C.? Right? Like, we started out in the South. We started out in slavery, moving up through uh, Reconstruction to to even a little bit further. But now we're entering into a little bit more modern times, right? This was written in, in 1920s, so it's it's not like it's like too modern. But you have a lot more of the, I mean, we're in the, this is being written in the middle of the Great Migration, right? Where, you know, a lot of people think about just New York, myself included at one point in my life, but, you know, the, there's a lot of other cities included that Washington, D.C. was one of those, those hotspots where a lot of uh, African-Americans, black Americans were moving north and fleeing, at least attempting to flee some of the prejudice of, of America. I think there's a lot of different avenues that an artist, a writer could take as they were thinking of picking different settings for their stories. And I think that the city probably speaks to them on different levels. If you pick Chicago, what do you think about? I say Chicago, what comes to mind? Quick. Portillo's. <laughs> okay. Uh, sure. Okay. Not the answer that I would have come to mind, but I think maybe, uh, music, right? So okay. if, if your story is going to be jazz based or blues based, then maybe you go to Chicago and then New York, you think the big apple food, music again, Broadway, things of that nature. And then I think of places where there's political change and political happenings where you saw progress in America, Americana, America culture. And I think that the heart of that through our entire history has been Washington, D.C. Yes, you have other places, I think, throughout, you know, that are very important in our history, um, Boston and, you know, uh, Baltimore, etc. But I think that D.C., because it is the political, you know, focal point of our country, it lends itself well to writing style of change for people and Former slaves were looking for change. And I think that Washington, D.C. just really lends itself to that. Yeah. And as early as like post-Civil War, I mean, there is historical evidence of 7th Street, like how the second cycle starts in terms of moving north to uh, this area where it could reflect change. 
uh, had a lot of influence and representation from black Americans moving to that street, like particularly like in the, the T street area and such. So, you know, when the great migration happens and you have more people coming in and more people looking for change in their own lives, let alone the country, uh, 7th Street was a hotbed for that. So it's interesting that his first piece here kind of locates itself there. And, and even then, like when we, we start out, we're talking about how we have uh, uh, the basically prohibition, you know, the people with the silken shirts, you know, crime pays side of, side of things, as well right. as the war, right? Like, like change, to your point, was a big thing in the entire world, let alone the United States. Yeah, and to your point of why Washington, D.C. is who are some of these people that are being portrayed in the story? bootleggers, right? Where are they from? The South, the Great Migration. It's another tie-in there. And you have these uh, different groups coming in. Who is making the decisions for the war? Uh, where's Veterans Affairs? Where are all of that happening? Washington, D.C. again. So I think this kind of just ties everything together in this nice little pretty bow. And I think that this setting is one, uh, again, lends itself to allow for these stories to uh, you know, cross paths with each other. What were your thoughts on like some of these quotes about Washington, right? The blood blood spills on the stale, soggy wood of Washington. Why? Why wood? Why Washington? Two things, I guess, come to mind, and I don't know if this will answer your question, uh, but I think of like the swamps because it, it's literally a swampy area where everything is built there, kind of in Washington D.C. And the other thing that I guess comes to mind is. Washington, D.C., because politicians have always, I think, had kind of uh, a negative portrayal even 100 years ago. I don't think they're looked on fondly, uh, that those are kind of the bloodsuckers. They're the ticks of society sometimes. <laughs> uh, so maybe it's that. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, there were references to that he kept referencing uh, the black reddish blood flowing through the streets, through the shanties, into the workshops and stuff like that. You know, it's clear that there's a conversation here about blood flowing through the streets. Maybe maybe that could be the sogginess. I don't know. But um, the fact that it came from black Americans, right? Like, And that's what's filling the streets and filling where does it go into the shanties and stuff like that. While you have bootleggers uh, making lots of their money with their silken streets. There's, there's, I think, somewhat of a commentary here about like what built America, right? When we're thinking about the old wood of when we used to build buildings back in the day. Uh, now being washed away, now being replaced with other construction things. But maybe there's an element there, too, of like what America used to be and what it's being washed away with to become in the future, too. And it's reminiscent of how, how it's always been. I think you made a good point there of how was America built. In the beginning, it was built on the backs of slaves, right? Especially in the South. And then as all of you know the migration happens to the North, I think that maybe uh, a lot of freed slaves, people of color, black Americans get up to the north and they realize that while they're not called slaves anymore, they're not treated maybe exactly as bad as they were. I mean, we know they weren't, but they're still being treated as second class citizens and they're still being taken advantage of. Their labor is still being exploited to build Washington, D.C., as you know, as our country moves forward. And I think that there could be something there as well. Now, Christianity comes a lot into these pieces. And at the end, he talks about how a black, a black God wouldn't tolerate this, right? He'd call for judgment. Right? Mm. We've seen that several times where he's talked about how, uh, you know, judgment, like we don't want to wait till judgment day from some of the earlier poems. What's interesting here is kind of anthropomorphizing a black God, right? 
Like, like we always assume white God from up, maybe perhaps us as white people sometimes. Uh, but like, would a black God tolerate his people being treated that way to your point about equality? Yeah, I always think about that uh, because there's several movies, uh, you know, comedies and stuff, and they portray, you know, uh, God in, in different colors and stuff. And it is always interesting how people view probably their God as the an image of themselves. Interestingly enough, we're reading a book that has that as one of the uh, monologues that happens in it too. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about let's talk about Robert here because we're doing the two poems Robert? plus the you know, Robert uh, <laughs> with the AV piece as well. Uh, kind of, we have this line: Robert wears a house like a monster diver's helmet on his head. What's this mean? Is he really wearing an actual house on his head? No, this is a beautiful story, and I would love if I was an English teacher to use this for teaching as metaphors and teaching how a writer will use different symbols or different uh, items and objects that we know that are very simple to convey meaning. It's it's masterfully done, uh, but it's something so simple because most of us know what a house looks like, and then you can imagine you know the weight of that, and you think, oh, I get that. And so it's something I think that um, a, maybe a young or inexperienced writer would be able to latch on to very easily, and that is just so cool the way that it's done in this story, Robert. I think it's still pronounced Robert. <laughs> oh it is okay yeah yeah it's got well, a cooler so, spelling so, <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of young robert we have him growing up with ricketts and he kind of has like a negative outlook right like death mortality is something that's on his mind kind of like wearing a house on your head there's a lot of stress and you're living in your own world you're living in your own fears in a sense as opposed to maybe getting out and engaging with society uh, at one point they even talking about him being a diver and life being the water that drowns him, right? With the antennas that reach out. I gotta imagine, because I, I, I can't myself, I, I am not born with a disease that is causing me to to have a different life path per se, but I, I, I hear all these stories about people who fixate on it when they know they, they have less of life or they have they don't have as complete of an experience as other people. Well, uh, I can go a little personal here on this one, um, maybe oversharing a little bit, but uh, my wife has an autoimmune disease, and I also have an autoimmune disease. Uh, mine is a lot less severe than hers, but it, it does define you um, if you let it, and for a lot of time, it will define you because it's all you have to latch on to, and it's what everybody asks you. Um, you know, the it's when you're pregnant, all they see is a pregnant woman. And when you become the disease that they, they, they don't care about you, they care about asking you about your disease. Mm. Um, and that's hard, you know, because not only are you having to cope with, you know, the, maybe this physical ailment, but then you're having to cope with, you know, the pity. Um, and it doesn't feel like it's genuine empathy sometimes. And so I can see where Robert's coming from. Uh, it, it can become a very easily, easily can become a very pessimistic view on life. And uh, that, that's not to say just the physical pain, it's so draining on you that that in itself is, is hard to deal with. And so you have emotional baggage, you have, you know, this disingenuous sympathy and then physical pain on top of all of it. It, it, it makes, you know, hard to have a positive outlook on anything. It really does. I think, I mean, most adults, not all, but we've all gone through that. 
you know that that phase where you almost kind of like start fantasizing about your own suicide and for for most people it's not that they actually want to die it's that there is this almost like payback like you want to see the people care about you in a sense because you don't see it in the normal day to day and robert has this line where he says it's sinful to have one's own head crushed I couldn't help but kind of fixate on that. Like, what does that mean in terms of like, you know, in terms of Christianity, you're not allowed to take your own life, right? And for someone to be forced into this different life path to feel like it's crushing them, that they they might be having those thoughts that even normal people have, like like normal life trajectory people, I should say, that it's kind of heartbreaking to think that they're like, that that's their escape. That's their way to get out of the suffering of life. It's sad. It really is. One thing that, I guess came to mind of of this suffering for Robert was throughout the whole story it, it seems to be all like grasping for something right he's grasping for air he's sinking down he's drowning he's being crushed it all seems to be this smothering of him and that if you let the disease become your identity it will smother you and you will lose and so I guess I took it as you know somebody that has kind of been there is you have to move past that and see yourself as more and give yourself more value and more worth than just your disease. And then other people will treat you the same way if you don't let yourself nor them define you as your disease. I wonder how much Robert allowed himself to have that, right? Like in, in terms of like, well, the, the last lines here we have, soon people will be looking at him and calling him a strong man. No doubt he is for one who has had rickets. Let's give it to him. Let's call him great when the water shall have been all drawn off. Let's build a monument and set it in the ooze where he goes down. Hmm. Still that's that suffering and that that sinking sensation, that smothering sensation. But there was always that caveat. It couldn't just be Robert. It had to be Robert the guy with rickets, right? It just couldn't be Robert mm. acknowledges a great mm. guy. There was that there was that asterisk there. And mm. and I don't like that. Mm, yeah, you're right in terms of <laughs> defining himself by that. Okay, I can see that. I can see that. Let's uh, let's talk about Avi, the 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 prose piece. Even though we have kind of like some prose poems, freeform stuff going on here, but uh, in terms of moving into this story, you know, I feel a little remiss that while we covered Blood Burning Moon, we we didn't even mention that you know the third prose piece every single time has been named after yeah. a character, right? Yeah. Always a female character, right? Hasn't it always right. been a female? Yeah, yeah like you, you kind of you kind of felt that it was depicting the different forms of of American women, perhaps. And when we get to Blood Burning Moon, while it still is about that, it ain't. It wasn't called, you know, what the girl's name was. It was called Blood Burning Moon. And you'll notice as soon as we get back into part two, we continue that pattern with Avi. And I feel a little remiss for not acknowledging that in our last discussion. Yeah, I wonder how we missed that. <laughs> That's weird. Yeah, because that was very glaring that every like third prose is uh, acknowledging a different, a different uh, version of an American woman and using it as, as a name as the the title of the story, which I think is brilliant. I wonder why he changed it. Did you get any like in terms of Av? You, know, you have you have a black narrator who's interested in this this female Av. With, with the, how aloof Avi was in the beginning, right? And how they described her as only interested in money. And, oh, damn, Ned. He's got that money until he's all used <laughs> up, right? Right. But 
But did did her personality remind you of anyone else in the previous section? With uh oh, what what's his name? The 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 guy that got stabbed, right? Where he's only interested about the the monetary value. Oh, what was his name? Uh, was it uh from Blood Burning Moon, like Bob? Yeah, yeah. And it probably just because it's most recent, but he you know was all about owning and material possession, capitalism. Uh, and I feel like that Avi's kind of that way. She's she's a capitalist. All she cares about is the money and doesn't care about the actual person. <laughs> okay, I can see that. And that is clearly a there, there's something to be explored about, you know, even in, in this previous poem about the bootleggers that are chasing cash and the silken shirts, right? Like the the exploitation for money, right? Like that's clearly something that's happening through Kane. I was thinking of Esther about how she was almost the uh, Du Bois called her the unconscious wonton, where she's like kind of like her behavior is dictated by a set of standards rather than feeling like a real person almost. And I guess even if those standards are based on money, it's still a standard, right? Even though I don't agree with it or think it's a good one, but it still is one. So I, I can see that. I like it. Well, what I think is interesting is how the narrator reacts to it. Because if you remember, you know, we've got war going on, like there, there's big changes in the world and, and in this this piece. But we have him is he's just fixated on her laziness, right? He brings it up four different times <laughs> that like he, he just can't stand that she just stays in one place and feeds off others. And, and at one point even guilts himself where he's like, well, I guess that's why she with me right right now on this, you know, this river is because she's used up everyone else's money. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, she, she's, this is a confusing relationship because I feel like she knows he has no money. He knows that she's not going to love him in the way that he needs to be loved. Yet they still are trying to pursue this quasi friendship relationship thing. It's very, I don't know. I don't know the word. It's, uh, <laughs> well, it's okay. The narrator didn't know the word either, right? He just said he's trying to turn it into passion. Um, well, it's not passion. It's not love. It, it's not lust. It's not need. It it it's it's like it's a necessity without being a necessity. And I know that makes no sense, but their relationship makes no sense. You've told me before that sometimes when things are given to you, they're not as appreciated as much. Do I you believe think that. Yes. A- do you think there's any element of that to how perhaps Avi gets her money, right? In terms of kind of parasitically sponging it off of people. And you have to remember this was a time, I mean, that, that I'm going to say American thing, but I do know it's not just American, but you know, there's, there's this comedian out there that has, uh, he's talks about what's it like to be a, a remote f- like worker from, from Finland And he's just like, yeah, my American colleagues, they get up and yell at me and wonder why I haven't gotten all the work done, but that's okay. They just do the work anyways, and it makes them feel better about it. Like, (laughs) like there's something to be said about how a lot of, of, not everyone, but a a thing about America is like the work ethic. We, we put on this facade of like, oh, we're such hard workers, even though we're not sometimes. And and we, you know, the, the person that stays and does 60 hours a week, we're like, oh my gosh, that guy's such a hard worker. Like we laud the person that is a martyr for work, right? And and Agreed. here is the narrator who who I mean he think he's trying to do better. Right? He goes to Wisconsin school. He's trying to get educated. He's trying to get a good job, but he just can't. And he's so mad at Avi 
because she just gets it for free. Yeah, I mean, he definitely gets annoyed with her over time. And I think that's the thing here is from from what you said of my belief, now this is my belief, that people typically don't appreciate something if it's just given to them as much as somebody, quote, works hard for it, might appreciate something that they have. But that's the unnamed narrator's view of A.V., because he's seeing her as not working hard. But A.V.'s perspective might be different. A.V. might see what she's having to do is hard work. Uh, I mean, scamming these guys out of their money, basically, or loving them out of their money. I don't know if it feels a little bit like maybe she feels like it's prostituting herself in order to earn this money. She may not see it as easy work. It, it may take a lot of effort of, of hers. It may take a lot of mental strain. It may take a lot of you know emotional toll on her as well. And that's why she can't genuinely love him back is because she spent. She has nothing more to give because she has to work in this certain way to earn her living because that's the only opportunity afforded to her. And that was true for, you know, many women, you know, back in this time period, they were put into very difficult situations where they had to do things that they probably didn't want to in order to survive for their family's sake or on their own. Yeah. We really never get a view into what is AV's thoughts, but we do have the action. So, so he goes away to school and remember he's cursing how she's so lazy. She won't even write to me. And then she does write to him. <laughs> which is funny, first of all. But also he's just kind of like, oh, this is so slovenly written. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. when he comes back, if you remember five years later, okay, this this is this yep. is what I I want to get your thoughts on this. He's like, let's go to the let's go to like the the park or the garden or something like that. And then he's like, oh, but the grass, you've got that nice, you got that nice dress on, right? Like that expensive dress. I don't want you to mark it up. And she says, let it get stained. Yeah, her fine clothes. Yeah. 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 So, so does she not appreciate the clothes? Is it because she didn't work for it? Is it you think that she just could always afford more? Like, well, why would she be like, let it get stained? It's not for him. I think it is for him. I think it's to prove to him that you are worth more than this pretty dress. Our friendship, our relationship is worth more than this physical thing. And I will prove it to you. I will have my dress be destroyed. And I still don't, and, and I think the roles kind of reverse here at the end where he appreciated her more than she appreciated him. And now the roles have reversed at the end of the story where she's realizing what she missed out on and she's appreciating him and, he, and for who he is finally. And now he's grown past her and he, he doesn't need that anymore. He doesn't need that relationship. He doesn't appreciate her and she's trying to prove it for him. And, and the only way she can do that is to say, Hey, I know you know me, that physical stuff and money is super important to me. So if I throw something away that you see as important to me, maybe you'll finally believe me. And unfortunately, I don't think that mends the relationship. Maybe it helps, but it, I don't think it fixes it entirely. All right, well, what about that last line? The Capitol Dome looked like a gray ghost ship drifting in from the sea. For me, I guess this was that it was never meant to be, that there it was an illusion of what their relationship was and could have been. So, I mean, it is kind of an unhappy ending uh, in my interpretation. Yeah, but it always comes back to the capital, right? Like Washington, D.C. An interesting second cycle is kind of happening here where, to me, I always come back to the idea, too, of like what was the country built on, right? And you had a lot of white Americans that were lazy, that, that used 
the, the Africans and the slaves to become rich and to not work by making them work hard and abusing them in a sense too. And I wonder if there's like an, an element of that is part, it's a very American story, right? Like it's not to say America was the only country that had slavery or, you know, like it was obviously one of the heaviest producers of chattel slavery, but in terms of like that idea of like who was working and who was producing, I think that had an effect on our culture more than maybe we're aware of. I think the narrator is probably worried a lot more about who's doing work and, and who's being lazy because there probably is a history there. And we look at how this capital and this country was built. I imagine there's more of an influence there than we probably acknowledge. There has to be a starting point at some regard, right? I mean, you think a lot of people think that the, quote, American dream of work hard, you'll get the house and the picket fence and the two cars and the three and a half children and the retirement and everything will be great is the, the 1950s, right? Because that was kind of born and bred after World War II. But where did those young Americans get those ideas of those dreams from their parents and grandparents, which would have been this generation of, you know, the 19 teens, 20s and 30s, because they were working hard or they weren't working at all. It was the Great Depression. They had no job. Uh, so I think that that idea of when you finally had a job and latched onto it, you had to work as hard as possible to earn money as quick as possible because you never knew when you were going to lose your job or an opportunity again. And that perpetuated through the 1940s and World War II into the idea of, quote, the American dream that has perpetuated the last, you know, 75 years. Very true, sir. Well, let us know what your thoughts are in the comments down below. Playlist down below for the rest of the Kane talks that are happening as we go through this piece by piece. My name's Ben Una. Peace. Peace. <laughs>